MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back to Popcorn Book Club. I'm Dana Schwartz, joined as always by Melissa Hunter, Jennifer Wright, Tan Tran, and Karama Dankwa. And this week, we are a little bit late for the 5th of November, but... Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> right in time for the impending threat of totalitarianism. And we are talking V for Vendetta, the graphic <laughs> novel uh, written by Alan Moore, illustrated by David Lloyd. Uh, God damn classic- what an intro. I yeah, know. it sort of rolled off the tongue. Uh, Way to set the tone. <laughs> it's uh, the book, the graphic novel is divided into three parts. So we're going to do each episode part by part. So today we're, we're just talking book one, which is like mm-hmm. subheaded Europe after the rain. Uh, before mm-hmm. we dive in, I'm to just... To be clear, R-E-I-G-N, rain. Oh, yeah, rain, yeah. like the CW Not television like series. Lady Gaga, rain on me. Like... <laughs> hey, Tian, are you gay? So before we start, I'm curious because V for Vendetta has had such like a big part like a big footprint in popular culture where even if you haven't like read it or seen it you know like the guy fox mask has become like the anonymous symbol so uh mm-hmm. jennifer what has been your relationship with v for vendetta before this this podcast book reading okay well i love v for vendetta but um what i find fascinating is periodically i get like really hardcore trump supporters who message me on twitter and i'm shocked by the number of them that have the v for vendetta mask as their profile picture because if you read v for vendetta i think the first thing that happens is v beats up some corrupt cops who are going to rape a woman um so <laughs> it's surprising to me that a group of very far right people have read this book and thought, yeah, this guy fighting against a fascist government where the police are an unbelievably corrupt force speaks Bold to me. Bold of you to assume they read the book. Absolutely <laughs> did not read the book. Thank you, Karama. Did they watch the movie? Because, like, it's still basically the same. I mean, those are the same people that, like, misuse red pill and blue pill. Also oh, the Punisher mm-hmm. logo. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my yeah. god, they love Punisher. People with they white love trucks Punisher. love punish Punisher decals. And you're like, what do you think that's communicating? <laughs> so yeah, I love this book because I think it has overwhelmingly good social and moral values and is a dystopia about fascism in such a such a wonderfully realized way. And boy, people on the far right are not picking up on that. <laughs> it's also very funny to me because Guy Fox was an extreme Catholic. So that in and of itself is like interesting that he was like, yay, Catholicism. I don't like your Protestantism that people who now adopt Mm -hmm. the Guy Fawkes mask are not like religious zealots. And again, it's an, 
unambiguously anarchist symbol. So Mm -hmm. now that Donald Trump is like the incumbent leader and they're defending, they're like, oh, the anarchy in Portland. It's like, no, now you should specifically be in favor of that quote unquote anarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, I think it's... Well, no, it just, I never thought about how even just in the past several years, I mean, since Trump became elected and is now a fucking loser, um, (laughs) you know, there was a moment to enjoy that together. I I do have to say, wouldn't it suck if we had to be like a politically neutral podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see how long this lasts. (laughs) Let's take a quick sidestep because I read these, uh, this first book, uh, before the election and it made me feel really uncomfortable because it's I mean it's so immediately uh uh, reflective of the Trump era of like make Britain great again is on page two Mm -hmm. and uh and then I reread it last night or the two nights ago to like refresh my memory. And I just felt like a different, this is like right after Biden has gotten elected and I just was able to read it and be like, ah, yes, that old thing. Uh, (laughs) Even though I know not everything is over, but it made me just feel so much better reading it post post post-election. You know, I didn't want to bring up the political allegory too soon, but, and not to get into the movie yet, but now that we're sort of there, a thing that I always found interesting was that Alan Moore famously hates all adaptations of his work because he's like a crotchety mm. old wizard. Like, that's just who he is. <laughs> Why does he let people adapt it then? Yeah. Because he, money, he, does, like, he always lets people Karama, adapt it. He likes houses. He, I don't know how many houses. But he doesn't yeah. like them. He's like, you can do what you want, but I'm not going to like it. I'm telling that's you now. Fair. Right? And he's that's always fair. right. Um, and he I feel also, like I'll take that stance too in my future works. He he explicitly <laughs> was like, "I'm going to adapt a bunch like, of your shit and then be like, <laughs> do you like it?" And I I, I also think he doesn't take money. I'm I, I'm pretty sure he says he just is like, "I don't want the money." Whoa, I'm going to check okay. on that. Oh, sorry, back, Alan like, Moore. I didn't mean to. Uh, no, no, he's houses. a he's like a weird wizard of the woods. Does he know he, that he could give it away? to good causes instead of letting movie studios keep it. I mean, not that they're not, in a way, a good cause. But, like, he could, you know, he could give it to, like, housing projects and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, but but I like movies. I'm just saying movie studios are not the thing that I would first think of when I hear a good cause. Yeah. Uh, Well, like, we'll figure it out. I mean, I'm going to look up about whether he takes the money. But the point is, he hated the V for Vendetta movie, which we'll all watch and talk about, but he thought that they made it too American. And he's like, this is about England. It's not a metaphor about him because it was happening during like the Bush era. And he thought that Mm -hmm. some like American Bush era politics crept into the movie. And he is like, nope, it's about Britain and England specifically. Well, it's about Thatcher, right? Like, yes. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, and like, he's like, and it's about anarchy and specifically anarchy. And if it's not about anarchy in in Britain, it's not my book. Uh, But I, Mm. I do think... Melissa, your point is well made that this applies to a lot of situations and a lot of totalitarian governments in a way that mm-hmm. maybe Alan Moore doesn't appreciate, but I think we can't. Yeah, I, it reminds me of uh, Bong Joon-ho when he was talking about Parasite and how he wrote it specifically for a Korean audience and then it became so wildly popular. And he's like, I guess we all live in the same, same country of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Yep. Yeah. See, he gets it. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what's amazing about Ellen Moore's work like this and Watchmen. You know, it's so relevant, unfortunately, you know, probably for decades and decades to come in all countries that are kind of resemble each other in certain ways, you know. Uh, Karama, what was your uh, V for Vendetta experience before the book club? Well, I hadn't read it before, uh, but I had seen the film many, 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 many times. Um, One of my really good friends, Jose, shout out to Jose, loves Natalie Portman. So we we watched a lot of Natalie Portman movies together, and this is one of them, and this is the one that I liked the most. So She can have a fully bald head and still just be the most beautiful angel woman you have ever seen. She is. I feel like uh, that's not that special, though. I think there are a lot of people who look good with bald heads, just but, not maybe a lot of white people. 
That's true. That's true. And also, I will say, I'm allowed to say this, not a lot of Jewish people. It's very rare that a a Jew looks very good bald. We have weird (laughs) egg-shaped heads. Anyway, Tian, what was your experience with V for Vendetta? You know, I had never seen the films, and I only know, you know, that famous scene where she shaves her head and, like... um, and all the mask wearing. I remember I, I did sketch comedy in Chicago at a, at, at a place called Second City. And when we heard were of on, it. Heard of it. Have you heard of it? Um, <laughs> on one of the stages, we took over a show. And the show before us had an opening that was very like themes of anarchy, themes of questioning authority and the opening was them wearing these guy fox masks and then like right before the scene changes you have to like take them off and put them in a paper bag so my experience with guy (laughs) fox masks is trying to dance in the dark with this and then like clumsily fumbling like trying to like put it in the bag before the lights come up and you're like caught as the audience sees you like trying to stuff a guy fox bag into a paper bag while the scene is changing so that is my experience with guy fox masks and vfr vendetta what's a pretty thorough yeah (laughs) what would you sort of i I feel like before we do dive into the actual text it is worth exploring that guy fox mask in popular culture how would you describe the place that the Guy Fox mask has in popular culture? Hmm. Anonymous. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah. But I but I feel like we we had that good point with Trump where it's like, but now it's sort of like the counterculture. It's always like the counterculture thing that's like trolling, but almost just being a bad person on purpose. Yeah, because I feel like some people think anarchy is coded by like literally holding up the status quo in the most obnoxious of ways <laughs> <laughs> is what I think that this mask sometimes yeah. and some people have like like taken that as a symbol of like you know what everyone's talking about feminism I'm gonna be an asshole my anarchy statement is to like push back on that like yeah, you can't being uphold an, the ruling system and yes, the government exactly. being an and asshole being an for the status quo <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, I'm gonna like. I'm gonna hurt a lot of people because they to protect this statue <laughs> of my oppressor. My oh uh, experience with the guy fox mask, and I'm uh, very embarrassed to say this. When I was in college, we put on a production of Sweeney Todd at the main stage of Brown University, and it was mm-hmm. not just a production of Sweeney Todd. It was. Uh, an Occupy Wall Street themed production of Sweeney Todd, (laughs) which is the most, I feel like every liberal, every stereotype that like Tucker Carlson has about Brown University, it's like, oh, there, like there was a giant McDonald's billboard as the backdrop and someone spray painted over it, eat the rich. Like that was like, subtext was, that was subtext. And during like the masquerade. could have been subtext. And during like the, you get it because in Sweeney Todd they eat they, they eat, eat people. people. Yeah, yeah eat I got yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and then during like the masquerade scene, which is like a flashback of, of Sweeney Todd's wife, there's a, a masked ball, and all all of us in the ensemble as dancers were wearing Guy Fox masks. <laughs> and then she gets you know, raped. Dana, is that that's what they wanted to project onto that? That well, we were we were the the we were. The idea was that we, the students, were occupying the theater, putting on a production of Sweeney Todd. Sure, Tom. sure, sure. Uh-huh. So you we his wife gets raped. That's what happens <laughs> well, at that we party while everybody masks watch. production of Sweeney Todd, and we just happen to have those masks at the ready <laughs> for, to use during the masquerade scene. I feel like that's a perfect college production story. Like, I feel like every single one of us has one of those that we were like, I, I was, oh, this is going to absolutely blow everyone's minds. We, uh, we have hit the nail on the head. It reminded me, I did a, in college at Northwestern, a um, production of uh, Brecht's Caucasian Chalk Circle. And, uh, you know, it's very meta. And the director decided it's going to be in a circus tent. And she spent all of her money to put it in a circus tent on, like, Norris Lawn, which is right by the water. And it's supposed to be, like, because, like, society is a circus, you know, and all this stuff. 
And um, <laughs> all of the budget went into that. And on the first night, it was in May, there was a, a classic May Chicago thunderstorm. And we were in a circus tent with lights and metal bleachers. And I was like, am I going to die, die. for a, a production of Caucasian Chalk Circle? Um, and everyone in the audience was looking like, are we going to die watching this student production of Caucasian Chalk Circle? <laughs> and then thankfully, like someone called like called the dean's office or something and it was shut down <laughs> and we had to do it in a um in a conference room uh the rest of the time with carpet oh, oh i'm sorry it was a nice idea i know that <laughs> no, was a bad idea <laughs> <laughs> anyway the complete aside that mike if you want to cut out you can no 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 keep please keep it in keep very important in. yeah well, I feel like theatricality right. is a big yes. theme in yes. *For Vendetta*, mm-hmm. which yeah. brings us to book one, in which we meet our two protagonists, yes. Evie and V. Um, okay, I'm gonna take a, a breather and prepare an elaborate set. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening and have read it or seen the movie, I'm going to give us... To remind you, because we sort of have, you know, read all of them, what the beginning and the end of Act One is, so we can just sort of Mm -hmm. dive in so we all know. The beginning is obviously the beginning of the book. Evie is a young woman working in this new post-apocalyptic London, and she goes out to work her first night as a prostitute when she is accosted by fingermen who are like the secret police. Um, We're going to get to the, the plot, but she meets V, who's like an anarchist, revolutionary uh, bon vivant, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and Good this, use of that. the uh, end of book one is we find out that V had been an inmate at a, like a concentration camp testing facility called Lark Hill, and that the series of murders that he had done in, in book one are all people who were in authority there. So the mm-hmm. investigating detective, who's sort of maybe like the third main character, we have like V. Evie, and then uh, Creedy, who's, is it Creedy? No, Finch, sorry. Again, I made a cheat sheet of all the white guys because I kept running, losing track of their names. <laughs> the the third, maybe like of this triumvirate, it, triumvirate is the head of the nose of this Norse fire party, who's a guy named Finch, who's a detective trying to figure out who this terrorist is. 
And at the end of book one, book one, Finch finds out that these murders are all people who are at Lark Hill and that maybe V is doing a vendetta. But maybe his vendetta is bigger than just Lark Hill and, and, and it, it extends beyond and that's just a cover up. Uh, yeah, I it, that just to skip to the end real quick of this book, I feel like I was really enjoying it. And I'm not someone who reads, I don't read a lot of graphic novels. So this is like, it's almost retraining my brain to to read this way. And it was kind of hard at first, I would say. But then I got really into it. And then I, I just love that final page of like, well, he might have been, you know, carrying out this vendetta on all these people. Which is the optimistic theory? And I'm like, oh shit! And it's like, or he's clearing the playing field to like set up some real shit. And I was like, oh, this is. But that is right. It's it's very uh, optimistic to think, oh well, he's only attacking these few people, unless he's laying the groundwork. Yeah, it seems more likely that he's eliminated all of those people. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't kill Lewis Brathrow. He renders him incurably insane. <laughs> Uh, which Love I thought that. was a How? very nice touch. Incredible yeah, touch. no, in a way that is so much scarier. Mm-hmm. But, way scarier. Yeah, um, but that means that none of the people who knew him in his previous identity are able to identify him anymore. I thought that rendering Louis Prothero, who is the the voice of fate, who's the guy who does like the announcements for England on like a megaphone speaker through the town. So V knows he collects rare dolls and he like, renders him insane using putting on like a little vaudeville performance with these creepy uh inmate dolls um such a good use of the f- medium of a graphic novel which is like using pictures and like creepy dolls are creepy and so it's it's always interesting to me to see like what translates really well to a graphic novel and i feel like that really was effectively scary to me oh yeah and also seeing him like back at the police police precinct or wherever he was like returned to just saying mama mama over and over again was very very jarring and scary and also felt deserved exactly (laughs) yeah yeah it's Um, that it's that scary thing where because we don't know what he sees we can always we can just fill in whatever's creepiest to us mm -hmm. yeah i i found you know, each way that V decides to dispatch these different people was also very interesting, especially Delia's, Dr. Delia's. Yeah. I was, I thought that was just a great way to not so gently be like, even though you might be a good person, you were complicit in watching these terrible things happen and you didn't do anything about it. And he well, sort of also an active of, participant. Uh, active um, participant too. Yeah, she, it wasn't just that, she was like a citizen of the country who knew bad things were going on. She was giving people at a concentration camp to some medical kind testing. of disease that caused most of them to die horribly so she could work on a cure. Uh, totally. <laughs> but I, I, do, yeah. I do like that it gives V that moment of like killing her in a merciful way. And they sort of yes. have that moment as mm-hmm. peers, which is mm-hmm. like almost as chilling to me as any of the murders. He just sort of like... We see like that he has um, a code, a code of ethics mm-hmm. in his own crazy mind. You know, like he's like it, Dexter. He, yeah, he's not like a yeah. a joker. He's not like out doing things because he's crazy. He's like very methodical and like he knows that she's like kind of a could have I been a good me, person. Yeah. Not a she good thought person. She could do something yeah. good. She was yeah. going about it in a horrifying way. Thank you. Yeah, I think complicit was not. I think like. That she had a no, hint she is of remorse. Though. She is, but she also, I think, maybe had like a hint of remorse more so than, say, Prothero, if that was his name. Um, Prothero. Oh, yeah, he fucking sucks. He fucking yeah. sucks. So, like, off with him. Tian, I know you haven't seen the movie, but I'm so excited for you to see <laughs> the movie. Like, I'm just so excited for you to see the movie. I mean, <laughs> I I also don't read graphic novels. This is my, I think this is my first, yeah, for sure. First one ever. So like mm-hmm. Melissa had said, I had to like kind of train my brain to the style of it. And I've been missing out. They are a yeah. delight. Yeah. Um, Alan Moore is just really great too. Like just really, 
I, I'm not a huge graphic novel person, but I really like all of Alan Moore's graphic novels. Yeah. My slight, um, I am a big graphic novel person. I'm a big comic book person. My um, slight difficulty with this book at first, and I, it just took me a while and I got used to it, was like a lot of the middle-aged white dudes looked the same to me. And I just wanted them all to be wearing name, name tags. That <laughs> I'm also on that level. I just kind of accepted early on that I'm never going to know who's who. And I can use context clues to kind of figure out some of them. And that's okay with me. They don't need me to know who they are. They're not real people. Um, and you, it's fine. It's fine. That's kind of the point, I feel like. I feel like it was intentional yeah. that they were all drawn very similarly because they're all kind of the same. They're all kind of very just like shadowy bad guy in shadowy bad government. And I feel like that's kind of the reason that they are like that. They're all sort of cogs in this like in this. um, Mm -hmm. One thing that was really interesting to me that I I don't again want to compare it to the movie yet, but we do sort of get these like weird humanizing of these weird bureaucrats and we find out they're like boring lives and their shitty marriages. Which is almost scarier than just when bad guys are like, like, uh, you know, Voldemort or just some like big bad to like know that these people doing and upholding horrific systems are just like shitty, dumb dudes. They're just normal dudes. I'm well, sorry, we're talking about shitty, feel... incompetent dudes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Indeed we are. <laughs> I'm in. It makes <laughs> me feel a little better, kind of like to see Almond, who, if I remember correctly, not to compare it to the movie, but was not in the movie, but yeah. like was kind of really shitty in the book Mm -hmm. to see him like not to see him beating his wife that makes me feel better but seeing him die after seeing him beat his wife i'm kind of like maybe this v guy is on to (laughs) something i feel like he's not wrong he's not necessarily right but he's not wrong he is very another thing that alan moore uh criticized the movie for is he's like V V isn't just about overthrowing to a totalitarian government. He is in favor of anarchy. That is the system mm-hmm. of government that he wants. I, Dana Schwartz, um, if I was you know picking a, a government system, uh, wouldn't go anarchy. But I think that V as a character is incredibly interesting and compelling. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen the movie yet, um, but I, I know it's very exciting. I'm so excited! It's so good. Yeah. This is one one movie where, again, we'll get to it. Personally, I feel like it makes effective changes to work as a movie and really works as a movie. And seeing Um, it kind of in reverse, reading this for the first time after having seen the movie so many times, I'm like, oh, mm. I, like, no disrespect to Alan Moore, but this is actually a pretty decent adaptation. You got to tighten. You got to make it be like, where, where's the two hours? But there are some characters that are clearly cut out of the movie that I had basically forgotten about and I loved revisiting. Um, I, I, Mary is obviously like a lovely woman, very sympathetic in this book. Um, I'm obsessed with Helen Heyer. Just oh. to <laughs> jump past talking about Mary for a second. Helen Heyer, who seemingly only wears a fur coat and has like platinum white ice queen hair and oh, yeah. introduces herself by being an unbelievable bitch to her husband. <laughs> and then when, uh, when Mary's like, oh, she's quite hard on him, isn't she? Her husband turns to her and is like, you'll never be as cool as her never <laughs> um, I, wait mary I, you mean I love Ro- rosemary right oh yes rosemary, rosemary. sorry yeah um she which yeah. one is rosemary i'm blanking yeah. she's, so, she's almond's wife she's right? almond's wife rosemary yeah. Oh, okay yeah, she's Ros- abused by her husband and yes Ro- rosemary is a major character in the graphic novel who's uh, cut out of the the uh film but she is yeah, um, she's straight gone in straight the film. gone mm-hmm. Which I think is effective because the movie is making different points. But in the novel, Mm -hmm. to trace uh, Rosemary's journey, she is the wife of uh, Almond, who's the head of the the finger policeman. And he's really abusive to her. And she's kind of like meek and like, okay, this sucks. And then uh, again, jumping forward, I'm losing track a little bit because we're just talking about book one now. But jumping forward Mm -hmm. a little bit, um, Almond is murdered. She being a widow in book one. Yeah. Yeah. And being a widow without very many options, she uh, starts dating uh, the head of the mouth, Dascombe, Roger Dascombe, who's like the propaganda guy. Um, And then she'll sort of continue on a downward spiral, sort of like, 
you know, a symbol for a lot of things. But um, Helen Hayer. We'll get into that more in the other book. We'll get into that mm-hmm. more in book two. And Helen Hayer, we're going to get way more into in book three because that's when we figure out who the oh, hell great. she is. Yeah. I can't Ooh. wait. Oh, I I'm excited. Wait. I like the level of different experiences that we have with this one. I feel like it's like a mm-hmm. nice melange, you know? <laughs> Uh, well, let's let's jump in. Book one, we're introduced to Evie, who's starting as a, a prostitute on her first night. What do we 16 make? 16-year-old prostitute. In, mm-hmm. 16-year-old prostitute. Karama, first-timer. What do you make of a first-timer Evie? Uh, well, I think that she's a really great, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Surrogate for the reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. She, because... She seems very innocent. She has experience with the world that we're in. And she's not um, she's not unaware of what the system is, but she's still so young and kind of naive that it feels like she, it makes sense for people to explain things at her and mm-hmm. to see things through her eyes. And like, obviously we get different perspectives from this, but I think that Evie's a great intro to the world and we see the finger police and um that's how we meet v also because she is so naive and like very bad at prostituting oh. um <laughs> that she's kind of like yo she tried you she put on her makeup sex and he's <laughs> like you're not great at this and she's like i'm 16 it's my first time she i felt very relatable in that moment because mm-hmm. i feel like i too would be very bad at like a street walking type deal She's, She's like, like crying. It's yeah. like it's not. Yeah. It's it's hard. It's embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> it's awkward to be like, "Would you want to, you know, pay and also have sex with me?" It's hard enough to ask a guy if they want to have sex with you and not if they want to pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of course, this is the moment. Uh, she's very bad. She's very bad at being a prostitute because she uh, propositions a secret undercover cop. And she is rescued by the very theatrical V, who visually, you know, using a graphic novel visually, it's very interesting because as we see uh, Evie getting ready, the very next panel is sort of V getting ready in his mirror and he's putting on his mask and hair and hat uh, we assume mm-hmm. uh, before mm-hmm. he a lot, a lot of props and costumes for mm-hmm. a anarchist. I'm just thinking yeah. in yeah. terms of like logistics, movement, fighting ability, a lot of planning. Really nice house. Pre- too. Pre-fascism, no, he definitely was home. a theater major and did <laughs> yeah, act in a circus sure. tent. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, for sure. 100%. I have more thoughts about that next week when we talk about book two. Um, but I'll get into that. Well, book one, I, we can talk about he loves like a, a flash bomb and then he built the entire scale model of Lark Hill to drive yeah, that guy crazy. What I want to know is like, where, what's, where's all this budget, com- production yes. budget coming from? Like with with the all the different masks, all the dolls, all the, I mean, I know they're, he took the them. The National but... Endowment for the Arts. That's where all their money oh, comes from. Okay. Okay. I see, I see. <laughs> my, th- my thinking is maybe V when they were in theater, when he was in theater school was like, Stage manner, produ- oh, stage manager yes. production, yes. because that's so he took how he all can those build props. everything. It's like the back of UCB, like exactly. he's, that's yeah. where he is. <gasps> Maybe he's oh. at the UCB of their world. <laughs> Maybe that is the, where the hideout is. He the, could have Alan taken Moore would it. Be very disappointed that we're making this so American right now. <laughs> My logistical Sorry, question is: he's he's growing fancy roses, and his his hideout yeah. his hideout is underground. How do you how do you grow roses Somewhere. underground? Where's he getting sun lamp? Where's he getting all these sun lamps? This is that's the same place he's getting scale models of concentration camps. Like I feel like it's easier to get a sun lamp than a scale model of a concentration camp that no one knows existed. He's definitely on some kind of soundstage. It's got to be with that scale. With that, and he's got good lighting. He like is lighting. The camps in the He's great got way. a couple uh, stage hands for sure. Yeah. They're like putting putting follow, the follow spot on him, you know? I think oh it's, gosh, yes. it's very funny to me to imagine the six weeks that went into him building and sewing <laughs> yes. the costumes alone, like sweating, before we see just the end I, results. But God, there was I a lot. Love a, 
I would love a book zero that's just him doing all the prep and all of, and, and running his lines. Yes, running his like, lines. Nope. Uh, I, I need a line. Uh, um, it's it's anti-fascism. Thank you, thank you, Carl. Yeah, just gotta keep going. Gotta work through it. That's so much prep. Live theater, every, baby. Every single part of his like presentation the way he kills the way he moves about there's just so much prep to it he's like an anime villain he just like loves the drama the the part that i was like wow he prepped this because this is just for him is he gives that speech to lady justice the statue and he gives a speech that he definitely a monologue that he definitely wrote and then he delivers he plays (laughs) both parts He like he, karaoke Nelly Furtado, Timbaland, <laughs> promiscuous girl to oh that. Oh my gosh, <laughs> marry me, Tian. <laughs> <laughs> and then he deposits his bomb at her feet and it's a, shaped like a box of chocolates. He doesn't know that we're watching a graphic novel of him. He thinks that he he made this he made this box bomb and tied the bow and cut it and made it look nice. Just for it to blow up for no one, just him. He's not posting it to no, his anarchy Instagram. The, the CSI people who <laughs> have to come and analyze it later. It's blown up. <laughs> well, it they're exploded. not going to see it. You yeah, still like, get what remnants, they, and what they're like, they "Ooh, ribbon! Where could he have bought this ribbon?" Like, have you never seen CSI? I don't. Maybe I just watch a lot of CSI. No, I <laughs> it's I so, think, I'm sorry. I don't watch it's, America's it's so, number one show. As someone who now feels like I have the weird chip in my brain that anytime I do something, I need to like take a picture of it and post it on social media to prove that I exist where it's like, there is something very sweet about him. Just like doing all this for him. No one's going to see it. No one's going to appreciate it. He just cares about the work. I feel like you should try that. To me, it feels like he has a lot of time on his hands. But people are going to see it. I mean, it blew up. Like, but he, not he got- not the speech, <laughs> not, not the, the details. Yeah, not the speech or the, the beautiful little box of chocolates that he put the bomb in. Um, it, it, it feels like nobody has this much time. And I think it plays into the kind of magic of V because there's like a Martha Stewart element to all of these actions. <laughs> like there's a lot of preparation going into everything that I don't think you would have if you also had to dismantle a fascist government. Yeah. Yeah. Like I could see a, a cooking video of V making the uh, communion host with cyanide. Just like yeah. mm-hmm. a beautiful YouTube. Making crackers video. is hard. It's hard. Well, what's yeah, wild to thin, me about all of this is that this was the 80s. So how did he know how to do everything? He had to just know. He oh, can't walk into I get a library. A book. He stole, <laughs> he stole all these books, right? And all yeah, these I think movies. He's, right. And he was in, when he was in his room five, he stole a bunch mm-hmm. of books and was just reading up on how to cook communion wafers, how to grow roses. <laughs> but that's the thing. He what if you don't have the right books? Is he, do we think he's limited by the books that he had when he was in? Yes. I think, I think that's it. I think all of it is based on, well, I have these eight. To, I have these eight uh, skills. One mm-hmm. of them is making communion wafers. Like, how do I make it work in my vendetta? And I think that's that's out. exactly it. He got these specific books and then built his vendetta only around the yes. things he did. Yes. 100%. Yes. How even yes. does one make a communion wafer? I'm Googling communion wafer They're very thin. Uh, but it's also got to never... be pretty easy. I mean, there's uh, uh, Catholics eat so many of those every week, you know? Yeah. Yes. They're manufactured sure. for sure. And it doesn't have to taste good. I mean, they don't taste good. They taste like nothing. I've never had one. It's bizarre. I've never had one. It tastes, like, it taste. bizarre, it tastes like, it truly tastes like less than nothing. Yeah. It's kind of weird <laughs> that it tastes less than nothing. Yeah. I feel like it's rude to not make Jesus taste good. Like, does that, is that sacrilegious to say? Like, well, if you're going to stick some part Jesus of in your mouth, I feel like it should taste like, hey, yeah, Jesus, tasty. And then, I feel like if you really mm-hmm. believe in transubstantiation and you really believe that it's Jesus's body, you don't want to think about it that much. You, can't just, yeah, you, you want, want it to taste like, like you want to associate like chocolate chip cookies with yeah. eating Jesus's yeah. flesh, you know? Or like have like meat. You don't but want it to be too literal. You don't want it to be like meat. Like and then you're like, oh. yeah. But Maybe you, that's you know why I'm not religious. That, like, if you get in different lines, you can get different. Like, okay, or it's that just one a over piece there is of garlic salami. parmesan. <laughs> <and that. laughs> um, hold on a sec. I'm just really quick going to Google some recipes for uh, church wafers. <laughs> <laughs>
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. After V rescues uh, Evie from the rapey fingermen who were going to rape and murder her because so of this fascist totalitarian government. But also, I think important, violence against women is also an indicator of, of a lot of extremist ideology. Mm-hmm. So that at least felt, felt unfortunately, uh, anchored. But mm-hmm. V rescues her and brings her down to his uh, hideaway. <laughs> And uh, she tells him sort of her story, which we'll get to, which is some like exposition about this world. And he asks her to help. And one of the ways that she helps him is by uh, dressing up as a child prostitute to sleep with uh, the uh, Bishop Anthony Lilliman, who's like the Westminster Bishop. Uh, and she's going to, I mean, open the window for V to, to come in and kill him in a dramatic way. It visually made me it made me think of killing Eve, which is funny because it's Evie. Mm-hmm. If if V and Evie were one person, it would be a killing <sighs> Eve scene, like how she's in this very elaborate costume and and just like di- like going out of her way to kill him in a creative way, but then V does it, and she's actually terrified. Anyway, that's realized- my cultural v- touchstone. V is a theater major who takes one poli sci class. That's that's what it feels like to me. <laughs> and philosophy one oh one. Oh, and philosophy, and, yes. And all the straight girls on this pod or or uh have had sex with him and regretted it. One hundred percent. Or by as well. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Oh. Would have done it. Uh, yeah. Um, yep. I as someone maybe as someone who <laughs> Maybe as someone who um, is not uh, Christian in any way, but I'm like very fascinated by like Christian symbolism and like Mm. idea. Like it's very like beautiful and and spooky to me. And I kind of like I love that imagery. So like I loved and was very spooked by like the juxtaposition of like V sneaking into this abbey with like Mm -hmm. the text was like we ask in the name of like the father and son or like whatever, like which might be very mundane to someone who is Catholic, but like to me as someone, those are those are still spooky words. I'm just like, ah. Oh yeah, the whole like, as I walk through the valley of the, yeah. Well, yeah. it is very yeah, spooky. Scary. I mean, it's scary. It's scary. Christianity, it's like on the cross in every church, there's a Jesus like bleeding from it and dying on a freaking crucifix, you know? That is very dark. And very <laughs> the theatrical. The crosses in the church don't scare me as much as the fact that people wear it on necklaces. Yes. That, for me, mm-hmm. is a mind warp where you're just like, wait a second. 
There's like a dead dude on your neck. You realize that. It's, it's, it's so a desensitized. Dead, a, it's a dead dude that's, that's also like usually kind of cut too. Like yeah, they always yeah. Jesus like have abs while he's dying, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is just a real. Can I, can I say cum gutters in relation to Jesus? No, I don't. I thought it, but I was like, I'm <laughs> not going to say it because it's going to make people angry. <laughs> Please don't. What <laughs> is that? that? That's oh, Melissa, it's the, the, the cum gutters. It's oh. the V. Oh my God. I did not yeah. know that is what v. that is called. That's another uh, V. It's the V. <laughs> Thank I God my that. parents don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> my dad just said he was going to start listening. Sorry, dad. Um, sorry, <laughs> mom. Wait, I'm sorry. Wait, I have to step back now. Yeah. Cum, cum gutters because it, it, it would, it's there's literally gutters. no logical reason. Yeah, like I've thought no, about it a lot in the last week and it doesn't me. make yeah, sense. Wait, like, no, gutters. are you? No, because it, if, if you come, it's erect and then it drips down gutters. Don't make me explain oh, this, you gross okay, people. Now I see. I just said it. I didn't want to explain it. <laughs> but like, Mike, mm, cut okay. it all out. <laughs> cut it all out. I had to. It, no, also I'm in relation thankful. to Jesus. It's <laughs> <laughs> just the best part of it. Thanks, Dana. Just want to make sure yeah. to clarify that was Dana yeah, who was brought Dana. it up. <laughs> Dana definitely said that. <laughs> Okay, well um, now I'm so, gonna let me let me redeem myself really fast by then making okay. and then Karama, only Jesus can redeem you <laughs> uh, by just making it uh, a very smart point that I'm gonna make is that mm-hmm. theatricality historically was a major power of the Catholic Church and that was Absolutely. its authority over the people. Mm-hmm. Like the Catholic Church was all about imagery and really um, striking stained glass and portraits and the the Latin mass and and song and and the smell hangy smells. Um, <laughs> I'm Jewish. I'm so sorry. No, no. You, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm such a shitty person for laughing at that. No, it was, a, it was the hand motion. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, the yes. thing. We know exactly what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. And I think that I'm like sorry. a point is that first, I was a theater major in college. And most of my performance theory class, we talked about Christianity and how theater, theatricality and performance developed in the Catholic Church. And um, like Christmas mummer plays and Corpus Christi's and how they would travel around because there were so many people that wanted to see the elevation of the host. They had to take it out of the church because people would like go church hopping to see as many elevations as possible. Because they're like, that's how I'm getting into heaven, Uh, which I don't think that's how it works. I think you have to also like. No, the more you see, then you're in heaven. (laughs) But uh, why not hedge your bets? But um, what I was going to say, the other thing is. Uh, this is so dumb, and it's not as bad as the thing that Dana said. Which is also but... <laughs> a very important and smart point. Um, but in the beginning of the music video for Helena by My Chemical Romance, they sort of open it up with the hangy, smelly thing. And like that level of theatricality and the attraction of like the church and the, uh, they're like very strong, powerful symbols. And I like the way that in this fascist society, Mm. they use that. And they have this like lecture that the priest, that's the word, priest is giving. And he's talking about how it's sort of like the priest and the voice of fate work in tandem. Mm -hmm. And they together tell everybody how to make Britain great and keep Britain great and how they should work together. And I think it's interesting that Britain and specific, which I think is to Alan Moore's point, is that they have not a separation of church and state the way that we do in the United the, States. The way that we say we do. You, correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the way that we claim we do. That is a very smart and important point. But like, they're not even pretending they have the Anglican church. The whole thing with the royal family is that they have been chosen by God. They're the head of the church. Not, yeah. And so I think it's really interesting how that works and how it's sort of like using their tools against them, the theatricality that V uses, mm-hmm. to then overthrow them. He also sort of does the thing mm-hmm. like a like a Batman villain, where he like leaves clues on purpose. Like mm-hmm. he specifically breeds these rare roses that can, if someone is smart, can trace this rare breed back to Larkhill where he was, and he specifically then leaves the diary visible with Delia, who's the doctor. That's why it's so chilling at the end that, like, um, uh, Finch is like, well, maybe, you know, this, we hope this is just his vendetta, but maybe the vendetta is covering up something bigger. Like, he is doing the Batman villain thing of, like, 
yeah, I'm the Riddler. I'm leaving you the fucking clues of who I am and what I'm doing because the theatricality is part of his power. He wants to like thrill and excite the people of, of England with like him as a symbol. He wants to turn himself into a symbol. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was fascinating is that there's an offhand mention on the radio that the royal family still exists. The princess is out and she's wearing a lovely salmon-colored frock. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is part of the theatricality of England, that it's something we don't have here, that you have these people that kind of performatively try to embody the English spirit. Mm. And where are they? What are they doing? Um, How... How how do they live in this completely fascist country now? What is the season of the crown like in V for Vendetta? You know, I, I hate to do the, the Hitler comparison, but uh, Hitler comparison. I also do this history podcast called Noble Blood, shout out. And I, I did an episode about Crown Prince Wilhelm, who was the, the son of the last Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm mm-hmm. the oh, yeah. And when Hitler was building a fascist government and claiming power... It was really important for him to have Crown Prince Wilhelm like by his side wearing a Nazi uniform to like uh, legitimize the the government. So this is like this is Germany. This is our government. It's it's a continuation of power. Mm -hmm. So it totally makes sense in a historical way that maybe even Alan Moore was um, going for that, like a fascist government would be like. And yes, the, the British royal family continues. This is just a continuation of Britain being made great. We are not a separate thing that Mm -hmm. overthrew Britain. Mm -hmm. We are Britain. Well, and it is, sorry, Alan Moore, I'm going to compare it to modern day America. Um, It is so funny. That's what's so funny to me about Donald Trump, like pre-election is that he was so desperately trying to find celebrities that would be like, Mm -hmm on his side or like come up and it ended up being like Lil Pump, I think was the last one before the, the end. And like, it it just felt like a fascist, a wannabe fascist dictator was trying to do that. But in America, most celebrities hate you. (laughs) They are, and they are royalty. They they are, are royalty. Um, oh, yeah. As soon as Jen was talking about the royal family, I was like, what do you mean we don't have a royal family? Yeah, yeah, we, have we have the Knowles Carters. What, yeah. are, you, what are you talking about? I know, Beyonce once, is the queen. Yeah. <laughs> I once in an airport uh, when I was going through customs coming uh, back from London, it, it was in L.A. I was behind this um, couple with two little kids and it was like a like a eight-year-old and girl and a six-year-old boy and and the girl said do you know this is where queen beyonce lives oh, oh my god oh, that's very nice okay that's awesome yeah and i was like you're right that is where queen beyonce lives. uh i'm gonna say slightly back to uh be for vendetta uh good for alan moore for breaking the stereotype that priests are uh gay pedophiles and just making the priest just a regular pedophile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what foresight, Well, something Ellen. that seems um, important about all of the people that we see really up close is they're supposed to represent this hyper-masculine, religious, uh, classic conservative model, and none of them do. Like, Prothero yeah. is the voice of the nation, and he is obsessed with dolls, which... I love you know, the dolls. Nothing mm-hmm. wrong with being obsessed dolls. with dolls, but it's not, like, a hobby I think John Wayne probably had. Um, but I bet, like, Lindsey Graham I, does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's dolls. the same. I think you can see that <laughs> a lot with Donald Trump as well, that I do not think of him as being particularly masculine. He wears makeup and is very obsessed with his appearance. Um, he's very worried about, like, people criticizing him or lies about his weight. Like, a lot of things that I just don't think of hyper-masculine people is doing or, or worrying about. And we see that with all of these characters in this book yeah. as well. Like, they love dolls or um, or they're like a pedophile, pedophile. creep. Or mm. um, 
Derek Almond, I guess, is completely enthralled to Helen Hare, my favorite moment of the book, where he just talks about how his wife will never be as cool as her because she's such a mean bitch. Shut up, so Rosemary. Awesome. <laughs> Wish you were Helen Hare. Yeah. I mean, who was, Dana, you have the cheat sheet. Yeah. Who is the, the, the female doctor? What's her name? Um, her, her name is Delia, Delia Sturridge. Delia. I loved that whole sequence because I felt like, you know, you see all the other ones and they're all fighting and and they're they're all very, all of them are equally culpable, particularly Delia. But I loved seeing one of the characters, like she has been eaten away by guilt and fear and shame and is just ready to die. Like, because she felt like this was always coming, whether out of her own guilt or just out of like knowledge of consequences. Um, and I thought that was the best scene, like in mm-hmm. the buildup that that was the last kill was really p- a powerful scene. I thought. She also seemed smart in the way that the men that V kills mm-hmm. didn't, that she understood mm-hmm. what was happening. She is, she's yeah. like, it's you. I, I know what's happening. I, yes, good. Like, I was going to say something along similar lines where I think it's interesting that the only person who feels any level of remorse that we at least get to see mm-hmm. shown is also the is only person who's like, yeah. of course, this is going to come back to get me yeah. and is also a woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's uh, I think that it's I'm not saying all women in government are good. I mean, Margaret Thatcher right off the bat, not necessarily my idol as a hashtag strong woman, but um <laughs> I think it's interesting to see that empathy in this story, at the very least, comes through mostly from the women in power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not that many. There's but that Delia. you, yeah. But that mm-hmm. it is interesting. Like, I mean, that you can you can be this woman with empathy, this person with empathy, and still get sucked into wanting to be in a position of power, being close to power, and using it against other people. So I think. I I mean, I love all of the complexities of that and Delia in particular. And especially because with the people that they are subjugating in this camp, like a lot of conversations are being had right now about like the percentage of white women that continue to vote for Trump Mm -hmm. and how white women benefit more from white supremacy than they do from intersectional feminism. And part of that is that like you attach yourself, if you have multiple privileged identities, you attach yourself to the one that gives you the most privilege. And in Mm -hmm. this case, it's whiteness. And um, it's really interesting to see that she is a straight white woman and they are subjugating people of color and queer people Mm -hmm. at these camps. So she's like, well, you know, yeah, I'm a woman and I have empathy, but also like we don't need these undesirables. (laughs) Well, I do think I do think she does justify to herself, not that I think she again, not to defend her because she's like an indefensible member of this totalitarian party, but I think she thinks Uh, It is bad that the government is locking up queer people and people of color, but they are, can't help it, going to use this to my advantage and do some medical tests that I'm curious about. She's exploiting the situation. I I, uh, shout out to another podcast um, that Dana turned me on to, You're Wrong About, which you were also on. There there was a several part on the Tuskegee syphilis study. Mm -hmm. And it, that Mm -hmm. made, and yeah, mm -hmm, and that made me think of this. And I wonder if that was a, um, an inspiration for it because it is all of these justifications. Melissa, that took place in America. This is oh, a right. British story. I was going to say. <laughs> Nothing could be say, relevant. Sure Britain, Hitler, Britain Hitler got a lot of ideas from, from America. From America. Yeah, That's true. That might have been like life imitating art, imitating life. I don't know. Like, but maybe, like, maybe the thing is, I'm sure that British people had their own shit that they yeah. shared sure. to like That's probably true. Indian people or something because but, they did a whole bunch of <laughs> shitty stuff to Indians. Yeah, maybe the scientists were at the Tuskegee experiment were like, oh, these Brits had a great one where um, they just yeah, like the secretly ex- is. Oh, okay. um, actually mm-hmm. a perfect example of that. that Can you explain? I don't decided, know that. Uh, yeah, during the Boer War, um, a lot of people were put into concentration camps and uh, the Britons decided that 
rather than contain any diseases that were ravaging through those camps, they would just let the diseases explode unchecked. Um, and it wouldn't lower the morale of the soldiers because they wouldn't have to kill them up close. They just put them in really, really close quarters. Um, and they just let everyone who got sick stay with everyone else. And um, it's considered a very notable instance of genocide. Like, that's still genocide if you make or allow people that you have control over to remain sick and they die as a result. That's, that's yeah. kind I of mean, genocide. Yeah, I mean, that's also a lazy genocide. Like, if you're going to kill people, kill them. Um, I'm sorry, morale. I'm not saying we should kill people, but I'm just saying, like, it's so rude to be like, mm, yeah. I'm just going to let you die through We're not going to give you any medicine At least ever. do yeah. the V for Vendetta thing and come up with, like, an elaborate and fun, dramatic way to kill someone. If you're going to kill someone, you have to come up with it, a whole have theme. Some, yeah, have a sense of build, style. Build a yeah, have yeah. a point of view. I already regret saying that, but <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> what I mean is, it feels like there's something that these people are saying, you're not even worth the effort of mm -hmm. actually exterminating mm -hmm. you. And that is adding insult to injury mm -hmm. in my eyes. Like, I'm not saying anyone should kill people, but I do feel like it's almost more offensive to me that it's like, we're just going to let them hang out together and get sick off each other. And we'll just see what happens. I mean, that was what I think is so like, hard, not the only thing, but an element of what was so awful about like the Tuskegee experiment, where mm -hmm. there was just this idea like, well, they have syphilis anyway. They probably yep. aren't going to get treatment. So like, let's whatever. just not tell them that yeah, they yeah. have syphilis. And, but also in that it, it was bad. It was lazy science, too, yeah. in that, like, they didn't take down, they, like, lost track of some of the people they were doing this horrible thing to. And we're like, whoops, we lost a few. And, like, just they did the science. There was no science there. It was super lazy. It's like most people mm -hmm. who are evil are also lazy. It just shows, I, like, a I've complete learned. disregard of human life mm -hmm. and, like, that white supremacy, that racism of just, like, well, whatever. Well, cause I think mm -hmm. it's also, yeah, exactly. It's rooted in like the white supremacy and, and the thinking of like biological superiority. So like, mm -hmm. you're, it, it's like, you're letting these people, they're getting sick on their own accord because they're just not strong because enough to fight it. Yeah, yeah. Like they're just yeah. not strong enough to fight it off. So, mm -hmm. and to go back to the book, Delia is, she comes in and says that in her diary, she says mm -hmm. that like, she starts, she starts looking at people and like seeing people of color and queer people. She's like, oh, I, st I started to be like disgusted by yeah. them. Like mm -hmm. she's a bitch. Yeah, yeah, she's a, a racist no, I mean, person. if she doesn't go in there incredibly racist, she is incredibly racist well, very yeah. quickly. Those, those yeah. systems are also designed to Fine. dehumanize the people mm -hmm. and like totalitarian mm -hmm. governments and, and racism, racist systems work by, you know, indoctrinating the people. And so it's like, she, it's, uh, what's that, that thing? Cognitive dissonance where it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. she has to treat these people in a certain way. So your brain is like, well, yeah, then they're disgusting. I will say, um, I think it's interesting that what ends up being their downfall is their sort of infantilization of these patients. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, it's so cute how the guy in room five has a little pile yeah, of wait, stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, little piles of bomb stuff. What's yeah. going on? <laughs> why, why the little piles of like chemicals? Did no one see that coming? <laughs> I would have immediately been like, I would have been like, wait, no, there's a yeah. plan here. And she even says, I think there's like a little method to his madness. He's so sweet. He's so fun. And like treating him like a child or a pet where it's like, oh, this is cute. Um, the, it ends up being the thing that gets their shit blown up. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. they really I, underestimated I him. I mean, I think they have um, oppressed these people so much that they've forgotten mm -hmm. that these people are capable of hating them. Yeah. That mm -hmm. if you have a system where people yeah. are not allowed to look yeah. you in the eyes or talk to you, and then there's one who can, like, grow flowers, yeah, you've, um, at that point, you've forgotten that that is a very dangerous human being who yeah. probably hates you. Can I ask before we close out, what do you th make of Evie and V and their relationship and how they interact with each other and how he interacts with her? I was going to say, I really do like like the the way that D uh, Delia is like a nuanced female character. Alan Moore is obviously a man. He wrote this in, I think, the, the 80s. 
Mm-hmm. I don't love like the daddy issues stuff. Yeah. With oh yeah, he's obviously her I'm dad. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I did not. It's like, all right, that's whatever. I mean, I think that she is more of a conduit to the story than a character. And yeah. so I find it yeah. a little uncomfortable when they like, I don't know, or like lazy when they're like, oh, the 16 year old has daddy issues because her yeah. dad, the socialist, was murdered by the fascist government. <laughs> How dare she have normal dad, normal issues because of that? Look, I, I think if we can accept that the second Mrs. De Winter wanted a murder daddy, we can we can also accept that Evie wants a murder oh daddy. Oh my gosh, so many. We have a theme. Oh, they all yeah. love murder daddies. They all love murder daddies. She wants a murder daddy, but she does not herself want to murder. And I do think that that is something that's interesting, yeah. her insistence that she's like, I don't want to be a part of this. I have no desire to inflict pain on others, even though I've been in a shitty situation because of this government. Like, they almost killed her. And even with Mm -hmm. that, she was like, you used me to kill somebody and you didn't tell me. And it brings up a really interesting thing about consent. She didn't consent to be in this government Mm -hmm. system, but she also didn't Mm -hmm. consent Mm -hmm. to overthrow it in this way. And I thought that was really interesting. That's really well said. Well, I think on that note, and one more thing I wanted to add, another problem that Alan Moore had with the film adaptation was that he didn't think that they um, went far enough in on the themes of white supremacy and racism within totalitarian regimes. And I think, yeah, that is a theme that was very important to him. And and I think definitely comes out very quickly in uh, book two called The Vicious Cabaret. So on that note, Mm -hmm. we'll hear you next week or you'll hear us next week. Jesus Christ. We can hear you guys when you listen. <laughs> <laughs> what did we want to tell you? Fascism, oh baby. That's our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dana Schwartz, and you can find me on Twitter at Dana Schwartz with three Zs. You can follow Jennifer Wright at Jen Ashley Wright. Karama Dankwa is at Karama Drama. Melissa Hunter is at Melissa FTW. And Tian Tran is smart enough to have gotten off Twitter, but she is on Insta at Hank Tina. Our executive producer is Christopher Hesiotis, and we're produced and edited by Mike Johns. Special thanks to David Wasserman. Next week, we continue our November discussion of V for Vendetta, the graphic novel, with book two, This Vicious Cabaret. Popcorn Book Club is a production of iHeartRadio. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.